All right, beginning in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, brothers or brothers and sisters, you could translate it, join, Paul writes, in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So I covered part one three weeks ago, three weeks ago on March 8th, and I left off at the end of verse 18, so we've already been in this passage, this is actually part two, but I left off at the end of verse 18, or with the statement, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So what I'll do is I'm going to start, since it's been so long and maybe you didn't catch that, I'm going to start with just a little bit of review. The title of the message, which I titled it, you don't have a bulletin so you can't even see this, but uh, the title is there on the YouTube page, Pernicious Influences, Pernicious Influences. A pernicious influence, and again, this is all review, is an influence that has a harmful effect, especially in a, in a gradual or a subtle way. And I gave the illustration before that rust, you could say rust is pernicious. Pernicious. Well, in our text that I just read to you, we find Paul addressing, if you will, a, a pernicious influence, which, which Paul viewed as a very real danger to the church. What was it exactly? Well, it was a number of people, many people, Paul says there in the text, many, that were going around and professing, claiming to be Christians, claiming to believe in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, they were purposefully, intentionally, proudly living as antinomians or as moral libertines. What is that? Well, we covered it before, but... An antinomian, the word means, it's two words, anti-nomos, against the law, against the law. An antinomian believes that there are no moral laws that God expects Christians to obey, or that Christians are released by grace from obedience to the moral law of God. A moral libertine could be defined this way, as a person who rejects moral boundaries and lives at liberty from constraint, from constraint of any kind, from, from God's constraint. So how did that happen? How did these professing Christians take on these antinomian moral libertine characteristics? Well, we talked about it. 
And we talked about historical context, and I won't go into that right now. You can pick that up on the website, part one of Pernicious Influences. But there was some philosophy of the day that contributed to, and it was bad philosophy, worldly philosophy, unbiblical philosophy that contributed to this type of thinking, potentially, uh, that they could go on sinning and it didn't matter. There, there was also those who, and we, we see this because Paul appears to address this in Romans, those who were misunderstanding or twisting the doctrines of grace. The idea that because God extends his grace to the sinner and, and he takes pleasure in doing that, that maybe we should sin all the more in order for God to continue to extend his grace to the sinner. Obviously, that's incorrect, that's wrong, that's not a biblical position, as Paul lays out in Romans. But bottom line, I would say the ultimate answer as to how it happened is that they were not saved. They were not saved. They, they held to and persisted in their perversion of Christianity because they were lost. They were still blind. They were still enslaved to their sinful passions and their sinful minds. And so while they professed Christ, they really didn't follow Christ. They didn't live for him. They were still living for themselves. And as these people grossly misrepresented Christianity or, or what it really means to be a Christian or be a follower of Christ, they caused a great deal of confusion within the church and outside of the church. And beloved, I'll add, and I think I said this last time, in one form or another, this antinomian thinking, this antinomian practice, it still happens today. It still happens. It's still going on among professing Christians. So Paul doesn't want the church at Philippi because he loves the church and he loves Christ and he loves the gospel. He doesn't want that church to be influenced by these folks. He doesn't want them to imitate this perverted version of Christianity. So Paul calls upon the church to carefully follow his example to imitate his pattern of life as a true follower of Christ, as a genuine Christian, and to pay special attention to, or learn from, and be influenced by the Christian example of other Christians who live according to that same pattern. Paul is saying, in effect, Beloved Church of Philippi, pay no attention to these other people who are claiming to be Christians but happily go on sinning. Instead, imitate me and pay attention to others who are like me in regard to their Christianity. That wraps it up for you. Paul goes on now to describe the character and destiny of these professing Christians. 
And that's where we left off in verse 18 with that statement, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They, one writer says, they, those folks, have set an example that is the absolute antithesis of the Pauline model and have shown by their behavior that they deliberately repudiate all that the cross of Christ stands for. I want to read this passage to you. I just want to read it. It's from Titus 2, 11 through 14 is the passage. And then I'll make some references to it as we keep pressing on. But I want it to be in your mind as we consider these things together. Again, the Apostle Paul writes in Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right. Back to the statement. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. In contrast to those Paul mentions in verse 17, that is, those Paul told the Christians at Philippi to keep their eye on or, or pay special attention to so that they would be influenced by and learn from them, in stark contrast to those Christian folks, in contrast to to those worthy examples of Christianity, in contrast to the Christian men and women who were, like Paul, actively renouncing their ungodliness and worldly passions and endeavoring to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, you had, in contrast to that, as I already stated, a number of people going around it and professing to be Christians, but willingly and deliberately living as antinomians or, or moral libertines. And so, by their behavior, according to it, Paul says they lived as enemies of the cross of Christ. That is, their conduct, their lifestyle, did not affirm, but rather denied what the cross of Christ stands for. Beloved, let me say it this way. The one who makes themselves a friend of sin makes themselves an enemy of the cross. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think the cross of Christ stands for? 
What do you think? A ticket to heaven? Unfortunately, many would give that answer. Many, unfortunately, believe just that. And of course, many, many professing Christians affirm that position by the way they conduct themselves, living not that much different than the lost world who's never embraced the cross, live. I decided at this point to borrow some material from a sermon I did uh, a while ago in the early days of summit from 1 John in regard to the cross. The Apostle John states in 1 John 3, 5, he states this, you know that he, that is Jesus Christ, he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. A few verses later, in 1 John 3.8, he says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What is apparent from these passages is that Jesus is for sure not okay with sin or with people sinning. In fact, his mission or purpose in coming to this earth and dying on a cross as John indicates, was not simply to just provide a way for people to avoid going to hell or getting to heaven, but rather it was to take away sins. The reason John brought up what Jesus' mission was regarding sin was to show that a, a person claiming to be a Christian but continuing to make a practice of sin makes absolutely no sense for their actions contradict the very purpose or reason for which Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. That Jesus' goal in coming to earth and dying on a cross was, was only to take away the guilt and punishment of our sins so that we could go to heaven but then leave the actual acts of sin to go on unabated in his people, still as forceful and intense as before, so that they would continue to practice sin and, and be okay with their sin in this life, but you know, be saved from the punishment of their sin and, and rebellion in the life to come is is ridiculous, and it's entirely unbiblical. I read this earlier to you. Titus 2.14, He gave himself for us to redeem us, 
to release someone held captive. From what? From all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The Apostle Peter in chapter 2 verse 24 of 1 Peter says, He, that is Christ, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Back to 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared, came to earth, went to the cross to destroy the works of the devil. What works is John talking about? Well, according to the context of the passage, it is the practice of sinning. So the works of the devil would include all that the devil has done to help lead people into sin and rebellion against God. The devil opposes God in his goal and desire is for the world of humanity, men and women, to also oppose God by sinning. His desire is that they would live as he does in rebellion against the Creator. That's the devil's desire. But Jesus, the Son of God, overcame the evil one. Glory be to him. He destroyed the works of the devil. Well, in what sense can we say that Jesus destroyed the works of the devil? Well, beloved, the original word for destroy does not mean to annihilate or the original Greek word that's translated destroyed, it does not mean to annihilate, but rather it means to give release, to break, or better yet, to render powerless or inoperative. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, if you will, by breaking the chains that make human beings slaves of sin. Although Satan remains active for the time being, he has already been defeated and awaits his final doom. And those, and only those, who are in Jesus Christ, who are his through faith, who have a personal abiding relationship with Jesus, only they can and do experience this victory and freedom from the enslavement of sin. They are no longer slaves of sin, but, according to the scriptures, slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, Paul says there, 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, speaking to genuine, bona fide, true Christians, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. John MacArthur, commenting on 1 John 3.8, 
says this. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil in your life and mine, here and now. So that anyone who goes on practicing sin has not had the works of the devil destroyed in his life and therefore is not a Christian, whatever they may claim. Back to our text in Philippians. Paul says in 18, For many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, Verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Their end is destruction. Beloved, what awaits those who profess to be Christians, to believe in Jesus, and by their behavior, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Is it heaven? No. Destruction. Eternal destruction. The Greek word translated destruction here, it comes from the Greek word translated perish in John 3.16. You're familiar, no doubt, with that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have the opposite, eternal life. Both words, perish and destruction, are used by the biblical writers to refer to the eternal torment and ruin that will in the end come crashing down upon all who are not truly saved. Truly saved. These professing Christians Paul is describing, they no doubt claimed that they were going to heaven. But in reality, their end is eternal destruction. The everlasting horrors of hell await them. For whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil and will end up with the devil for all eternity. Paul goes on. Their God is their belly. As I told you last time, I believe, another translation of that, I think it's a good one, is their God is their appetite. Their God is their fleshly appetites. Their, their God is their fallen flesh with all its many sinful longings and desires that are never satisfied. A similar statement is found in Romans 16, 18. There, again, Paul speaking of those of false teachers. There he says, for such person, persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. The antinomians Paul describes, beloved, they do not 
They might say they do, but they do not really worship the perfectly loving and good God who saves and works powerfully to progressively purge sin from his worshippers' lives. But instead, instead, the reality is, Paul says, they worship a vile and selfish God. Their fallen flesh, a God who cares nothing about his worshipers. And enslaves them more and more to that which ruins them and dishonors and pains their holy and perfectly good creator. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. They glory in their supposed freedom to sin or feed their fleshly impulses. They unashamedly do that which they should be ashamed of. That which they should be putting to death as those who claim to be followers of the risen and righteous Christ who died to free them from their enslavement to sin. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. One writer says just this, their whole orientation is earthly. These, these professing Christians are not, regardless of what they say, they are not heavenly-minded. Not at all. They are not focused on the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3.1. No! Their hearts are gripped by and given to the fallen and sinful world Below. They are not interested, beloved, in putting to death whatever belongs to their earthly nature, like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, as Paul exhorts the Christians to do in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. No. They freely give themselves over to the demands of their earthly, sinful nature. With minds set on earthly things, and then, in contrast to them, we have verses 20 and 21, which is the truth of the true believer. And then beginning at verse 20, he says, yes, they have their minds on earthly things, but listen, remember, they're professing Christians. They claim to be believers, followers of Jesus. No, no, and no, and no. 
Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven. We are the heavenly minded. We are the ones who will be dwelling with the king forever in a environment free entirely of sin with the sinless one and will be entirely sinless. That's where we're going and we are moving in that direction. That's what we think about putting off sin, walking in righteousness. We are citizens of a righteous, holy kingdom. I love this. But our citizenship is in heaven. Theirs is not demonstrated by the way they behave. And from it, we await a savior. Some translations have the word eagerly, which is beautiful. I think it's appropriate. We eagerly, eagerly await a savior. Boy, do we. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I just, I just thought, I want to just make a note here. We true Christians, we, we who are citizens of heaven, we eagerly await our Savior's return from heaven. I, that's beautiful, and I, and I say it's beautiful because, hey, we're not awaiting the judge. The punisher. The world, that's what they're awaiting. We are not awaiting the crusher. He will do that. He will crush all rebellion. He will put it down. He will judge the rebel. Not us. By the grace of God and his love for us, we who are his, we await a savior. We await the one who gave his life to rescue us from ourselves. That's who we await. And when he comes, he will fully transform us to be just like him. He will finish the good work that he started when he sovereignly called us to himself and made us the blessed children of God. One writer says this concerning this part of the text. He, Christ, will transform our lowly bodies, which are subject to disease and death and prone towards sin. He will, he will transform them into conformity to his resurrection body, his sinless body, his glorious body, his everlasting body. This will involve not only an outward physical transformation in which we receive bodies not subject to disease and death, but also an inward spiritual transformation in which we are delivered finally and forever from all sin. That's our hope, at least that's what it should be, and that's what we're moving towards, and that's what we're working for. 
by the power of God and the spirit that resides in us. And then he says, if you wonder how God will do it, Paul simply states that it is by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Let me conclude this way. With a little application. We too need to be aware, be really sensitive to thinking about the fact that pernicious influences surround us. They surround us. We may not have the exact same situation that they had that Paul was addressing, but it's very often very similar. Uh, it's an influence that it has a harmful effect, especially in a gradual or subtle way. Just think with me for a second, beloved. Think with me. Media, TV, movies, sports stars, very popular shows. And think about some of the things that might be said from those who claim to be Christian. And then yet they do something entirely unchristian, at least according to the word of God. And they tell you, you can't say anything to them about it. Don't question my Christianity, which is exactly what Paul does again and again in the scriptures. Don't question my Christianity. I'm a believer. Who are you? And yet, they go on practicing sin. Here's the pernicious influence of that, because it's everywhere. It's not just in, in TVs, movie, uh, movies, and media, but it's possibly within your family, those who profess faith in Christ, but then go on practicing sin willfully, deliberately. I, and I'm not talking about our struggle with sin that the Christian has, it's a real struggle, but it is that. Because we have been made new creatures in Christ, it's a struggle. We're fighting it. Sometimes we're losing, and then sometimes we're winning, but we're fighting. And we don't call good what God calls evil. With everything going on around us, even within the church, there, the scriptures tell us there are wheats and tares in the church. There are those who are truly believers, and there are those who are, they're there, but they're not really part of the church. They're just present. Not really, they're, but they profess to be. But then they go on practicing sin. They live like the devil, if you will. There's no real change in their life. It doesn't mean they murder people or... Or, you know, rob stores. No. But there's no movement from the old man to the new man. They just go on doing what they always did. Sinning. Not walking in the righteousness of Christ. When that happens, and it happens over and over again all around us, Christians are, we are tempted by this, or can be, to believe a lie about our Christianity. 
about our salvation that says how we live our lives is, you know, not that big of a deal. Or, to, or for us to be tempted to care less or not at all about our holiness, about our sanctification, about our Christ-likeness. And beloved, I've talked to you about this before as we've gone through other letters in the scriptures. But when we are tempted and then give in to those temptations and find ourselves not caring, not being concerned about, not being disciplined or diligent in the area of our holiness and our pursuit of Christ's righteousness and our putting off the old man, putting him to death, and walking in this newness of life that we have because of Christ and his work on the cross. When we do that, when we, we don't do what we're supposed to do, in other words, the beauty of the gospel is diminished. It's diminished. It's, it's, it's supposed to be one of the things that causes the world to stop and pause and go look at them. What happened? Why do they behave the way they do? It is so different from the way they behaved before. They're moving in a different direction. What happened? And it, by the way, the behavior is beautiful because it's the righteousness of Christ manifesting in the Christian's life. So it's beautiful just as Christ is beautiful. And it's meant to lure sinners to Christ. So we need to be aware. We need to be sensitive to the fact that pernicious influences are everywhere. Are we aware of that? Are we being careful? Or are we allowing these things to have an influence on us? Instead of the scriptures. Last Paul says to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Other Christians who follow the same pattern that you have in us. The example. Beloved, having examples important. And it's expected by Paul. It's expected that we would have examples or that we would be examples or both. That we would be instructing in the ways of Christianity by the way we conduct ourselves and we would be influenced rightly by others who are doing likewise so that we're encouraging one another in the things that we've been talking about this morning. So let me ask you, you know, and that's something to consider. What kind of example are you? Because it's both. Not only do we need good examples, but where do we get them if no one's being a good example? What kind of example are you? Is your example hindering your brothers and sisters in Christ in regard to what should be a pursuit of holiness? A ridding of sin in their life. Is it hindering them or is it helping them? Is it showing them the way? Is it encouraging them? What about your children? 
What about your spouse? Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his work on the cross and all that it means. I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that good work in us who are yours that you began at some point in our lives and you continue to do and that you would continue to move us along toward our ultimate end, complete conformity to our beautiful, glorious, perfectly righteous, sinless Savior. I ask these things for our good and for your glory, Father. For your glory. In his name.